Good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. I, um, I love that. Your Jesus looks like Chris Hemsworth. And believe it or not, I looked it up and I found plenty of uh, people who think that. So that's funny. Did you catch that line, though? Religion is iffy. Once you come out as believing something, you are open. You open yourself up to ridicule. Now, and you can ask any Lions, about, any Lions fan about that, right? And believe in them. It's, that's harsh, right? <laughs> So this morning, uh, we are nearing our end of our read through the book of John. Uh, It's been six months, and uh, this morning, we're in chapter 20, and we're going to see that coming out as a believer in Jesus in his time opened you up to a lot more than just ridicule. Uh, To get a better feel for the context of what is unarguably the most important part of Jesus' story, his resurrection, it might be helpful to reflect on what it has meant to come out as a believer throughout history a little bit. Now, much has been made about this in our country in the last 15 to 25 years, about how America used to be friendly to the Christian faith and now is growing increasingly hostile to it. And we kind of hear about that all the time. And lots of folks, you know, kind of reminisce, like, do you remember when we could this, that, or the other, and now we can't, or something like that. Well, one scholar, a man named Aaron Wren, kind of framed it this way. This is what he says. Before 1994, America was what he called positive world. We were a society with a positive view of Christianity. To be a church-going person was respected. It was actually a status enhancer if you were a church-going person in American culture, and Christian norms were the norm in our society. And then from 1994 to to 2014, he argues that that's more like a neutral world. Things are more neutral. Society had a neutral stance on Christianity. There was no longer any kind of favored status that went along with being a believer, and um, the moral norms were starting to fade. And from 2014 to the present, Wren argues that this is now negative world, where being known as a Christian is actually a social negative. Uh, Christian uh, morality um, is expressly repudiated often in public and in the public square, and even seen as a threat. And subscribing to it could bring you negative consequences in life. Now, I am not going to suggest that there is nothing to this. I'm old enough, plenty old enough to know that things have definitely changed in our culture when it comes to faith and how people who have faith are viewed. So I'm not denying that. But there is something, and so there is something to what he's saying. But I do want to throw out the possibility that we have overcooked this analysis quite a bit, Um, both in how bad things are now and in how good things were before 1994. And so, um, guys, I'm gonna have to call a quick timeout real quick because my computer just malfunctioned. So give me one second. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So sorry about this. Now I need my glasses to see this. 
Can you? <laughs> See, I just told you how old I was. I don't know. This is. Uh, can you bring up the house lights for one second? Just a quarter. I'm going to get this, guys, I promise. What you guys don't know is that I have to increase the font on this thing or I can't see it. And for some reason, it didn't do that for me. We can edit this out on the version that goes to the academy later. Okay. I think I am. No. I don't know why it's not doing that. There's no way I can see this without that. One second. Yeah, let's, I don't know if that will reach. I don't know why that's doing that. I sh why didn't I just memorize this? Dang it. So sorry, guys. Yeah, yeah. No, I know where I'm at. I just, I can't get it to... Uh, no, it just needs to do this. I think I got it. I don't. I don't know why it's doing that, guys. No, let me see if I can. Hold on, let me do this. Let's try this. I'll just bring this up here on stage with me. Okay, we'll see if this works. Sorry about that, I have no idea. Okay, you can bring those lights back down. Now just don't fall in this big open hole in front of me. That's the next, uh, that's the next thing we're hoping not to happen here. So, um, okay, so anyways, I just wanna, um, Go back one second so we're all on the same page. There's something to, I think, what he's saying, that there's three kinds of worlds. There's a negative world, neutral world, positive world, and that something has happened in American culture in the last little bit, that things are tougher um, socially and culturally to be a Christian. But I do think that we've overcooked this quite a bit, and I want to give us just one example, because I think we've overcooked this analysis that uh, of how bad things are now and maybe how good things were back in the good old days. So here's just one example. Going back to the decade that I think many of us idealize, the 50s, in a part of the country that was thoroughly, openly, enthusiastically, and proudly Christian, the American Bible Belt, the heyday of positive world, right? The year was 1957 when Sybil Jordan Hampton first attended Little Rock Central High School. She was what, part of what became known as the Little Rock Nine. And her first day of high school for her was so horrible, it was so threatening and vicious that the National Guard had to be brought in to protect her from her classmates and their parents. 
No white student would speak to her. When any of them did address her, it was only to hurl the N-word at her in hate with hatred. The only time, in fact, that Sybil um, Jordan Hampton spoke out loud in school that year was when it was her turn to read the Bible verse for the day. She said she always read the same passage. Psalm 121.1. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, can you imagine? Does that sound like positive world to you? These were the good old days of the wholesome 50s when Christianity was so well accepted in the halls of power that the government-mandated public schools actually made a rule that you had to read the Bible every day. And yet, here's a young Christian girl facing a tidal wave of hate in the heart of the Bible Belt. Horrible. Sounds like negative world to me. At a level and a magnitude, I think, that we can't even imagine today. And so, I'm not suggesting that things aren't changing, but generally speaking, I do think it's time for us to have a little bit different perspective on the culture that God has given us and planted us in. In this morning's passage, all of these issues come crashing into the story. It's a stunning reminder, I think, of just how bad things can get. In John chapter 20, we're going to see that. And this incredible invitation, challenge, and chance for us to embody the grace of God. Regardless if we live in a world that sees the life of faith in a positive, neutral, or negative light. And we can do that by lifting our eyes and looking to where our help comes.
Thank you so much, Snide. Beautiful. So context is everything for this story that we're looking at in John chapter 20, the story of Jesus' resurrection and its immediate aftermath. And actually, with Easter coming up in this spring, we're going to spend more time on the resurrection itself at that time. This morning, really what we're going to focus on is the aftermath of the resurrection. And so I want to spend a minute just reminding us of where we're at in the story that John is telling. Last week in John 19... We saw that Jesus was executed on a hill outside of Jerusalem. This was a Friday evening or Friday afternoon. And um, it was, uh, Jerusalem's the capital city of Israel, which is, at this time in history had been captured by the Romans, completely controlled by them. And so this is an ancient Jewish country totally controlled and its people practically enslaved when you looked at, at the laws and the tax rates and things like that by this Roman Empire. And so um, the Romans had a long history at this point of conquering nations, but they also had a really good history, good history if you, of conquering nations and then figuring out ways of pacifying the people. It was actually good for business. You didn't want them constantly rebelling against you. But Israel was a different gig. This is like the, the place that no Roman uh, governor wanted to be in charge of. It was this backward, awkward, dry, dusty place that nobody wanted to be in the empire, except it was a source of income. And so, um, but it proved almost impossible to rule because the Jewish people just refused to give in to Roman power, and they refused to give up their hope in being saved and being set free. And so over time... Um, however, what happens is the political powerful, um, the Romans, and the religious elite, they come to this understanding. They come to kind of this backroom deal, if you will, um, that was reached between them. And what happens is that the Roman power, they allow the Jewish religious authorities to run the country religiously. And in turn, the religious leader, and so the religious leaders get to keep their power, they get to keep their prestige, they get to keep their position. And in return, the religious establishment, they get to, uh, uh, they, they help pacify the, the population for the Romans. And then that's good because the taxes keep flowing, which is, you know, that's what Rome wants. But everybody knew that the Romans and the Jews, they, they did not like each other at all. And so it was a major accomplishment in an ironic way that the most powerful country in the history of the world at that point and the first monotheistic religion of the world did find a way to finally, openly cooperate this one time. And it's when they conspired together to crucify Jesus. 
It happened on a holiday, uh, the holiest day uh, in the Jewish calendar was known as Passover. It's just a, just a week before Jesus had entered on what we now know as Palm Sunday. He had come into Jerusalem, um, with a, and the city was just cheering for him because they thought he was the Messiah. And to them at that point, the Messiah meant the one sent from God who's going to set us free from the Romans. So you have to picture Jerusalem teeming with people, full of hope and expectation, and then the man the masses were hoping in goes from hero to zero to dead in like less than a week, so in a week. And so this is a tinderbox. Jerusalem is on edge. It's ready to explode. Jesus is crucified on Friday. He's buried that day before sunset. And then he's guarded. His body is guarded by Romans because the, Jew, the Jewish um, authorities said, you have to guard the tomb. So here they are working together again. And John chapter 20 picks up the story from there on Sunday when Jesus is resurrected, Sunday morning. So several of his first, follower, first followers go to the tomb and they discover that it's empty on what we know now as Easter morning. And now this is a nightmare for everybody that has something to lose in this arrangement that's happening during that time in that culture. And so this, those in power were panicked and um, they were looking for the body of Jesus, and that meant, effectively, that they're hunting for his small band of followers who they assume have stolen his body. Now, that, I would argue, is negative world, okay? That's, that's what negative world looks like, to be hunted by the authorities for, for your faith. And so that's the negative world that the first believers in Jesus that believers that this is the Messiah, the risen Lord of the universe, that's the first what they, what they found themselves in. And this is what the Bible says in John chapter 20. Later on that day, the disciples had gathered together, but fearful of the Jews, had locked all the doors in the house. Jesus entered, stood among them. The disciples, seeing the master with their own eyes, were awestruck. But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas said, Thomas does come later and he says, unless I see the nail holes in his hands and put my fingers in the nail holes from when he's crucified, stick my hand in his side from when the Roman soldiers stuck a spear in his side, I won't believe. I won't believe it. Now let's try to soak all this in for a second, folks. This small, terrified group has already seen their leader betrayed by one of their own and then executed in public. Then in what can, we can only describe, we have to just admit it, something that's totally unbelievable, Jesus shows up. He comes back to life. And yet there's this one guy, a friend supposedly, who says, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. When Thomas says that, we have to understand this is so far beyond any disagreement that any of us have had in our real life. This is so far beyond any political division or frankly any dis disagreement any of us have had about anything because more is on the line when Thomas says that. Everything is on the line. More is at risk. More is at stake. This is literally a life and death situation. Thomas's disbelief, in other words, is not only offensive, 
Because he's saying, I don't believe you. Not just I don't believe it, I don't believe you. I don't trust you. I think you're either lying to me or you're crazy. But it's, it's way beyond just offensive. Okay, Thomas's doubt is beyond that. It's dangerous because it, think, it, think about it, it could be deadly for them because if Thomas doesn't believe them, they have to be thinking, what's to stop this guy from going out and telling the Romans and the Jewish authorities where we are? It's gonna get him off the hook. It'll get him a huge reward. Judas just did it a few days ago, so we know it's not beyond anybody to betray us like that. And yet with all of that, with the personal offense, the danger, the life and death situation, the very first Christian church, and that's what this is. That's who this group is. This is the very first community of people who believe that Jesus is the crucified and risen Savior of the world. How do they respond to this negativity, to this negative world that they find themselves in? And how do they respond to the very first unbeliever? That's what Thomas is. To an offensive, disrespectful, and possibly dangerous person who could very well have them killed. Well, I think they respond in a way that can only be described as miraculous. The Bible says this. Eight days later, which just means the next Sunday, his disciples were again in this same room. This time, Thomas was with them. And Jesus came through locked doors, stood among them, and said, peace to you. Then he focused his attention on Thomas. Take your finger and examine my hands. Take your hand and stick it in my side. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. And Thomas's response, my master, my God. What a moment. You know, someone asked me a couple weeks ago, why do I so often talk about philosophy and psychology? And the short answer is, I'm pretty nerdy. I like to read those things and then torture you guys with it. But um, the other answer is that philosophy literally means the love of wisdom. And psychology literally means the study of the soul. The study of the soul. And the soul has a very special place in our spiritual anatomy, if you will. The soul is where our mind and our body and our spirit come together somehow. In fact, the ancient Jewish people referred to in the, in the Old Testament referred to the soul as nephesh. That's the Hebrew word for it. And it literally means neck. That's what nephesh means. It's the place where mind, body, and spirit, which breath is what that word means, all come together, the neck. And what we see happening here in this miracle that follows the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, it is not only the soul of Thomas being restored and being redeemed, but the soul of the church, the first community committed to living in and living out the grace of God on display. Our psyches, our souls are complicated. As anyone who's ever raised a teenager or who's ever been married or whoever is really honest with themselves will freely admit, we are complicated. 
We are mysterious and our souls no less so, but psychologists have a number of different ways of like helping us to look at ourselves and, and, um, and look at the human psyche. And one of the theories that I really resonate with is one called self-discrepancy theory. And it's a framework that says that all human beings not only have a self-image or a self-concept, but we actually could have as many as three at any given time. So there's the actual self, all right? And this is who we really are, like actually, really are right now. There's the ideal self, who we wish we were or who we want to be. And then there's the, the ought self, the person we believe others want us to be or think we should be. So this framework is called the self-discrepancy theory because it proposes that much of the anguish of, of the human condition comes from the discrepancies. If you picture each one of these selves as like circles, okay, when they don't line up, when they're separated like this, the differences between these three self-concepts that we carry around with us um, creates so much anguish in our life. So the theory goes on like this. Depression grows out of the gap that we perceive between our actual and our ideal self. Like we know who we are, we know who we wish we would be and we're not there, okay? Anxiety is rooted in the gap between our actual self and our ought self. Like the pressure that we get from fill in the blank of, who, um, of what we should be like, right? And expectations of others. Now, I've said that the soul is super complicated, so I'm not pretending that this fully explains the human soul or psyche or anxiety or depression. Not by a long shot. I'm just saying that for me, this has been helpful as I think about the mystery that is me. But um, maybe it won't be for you. But this theory basically comes to this conclusion. Way too often, too many of us deal with ourselves and deal with others and are dealt with by others, often families, schools, friends, yes, religion, in way too simplistic of a fashion. Like, too often our ideal self and our ought self are like leveraged against us to get us to do something, to, to be what others want, not really for us, but from us. This is the, the danger that we talk about a lot of, um, that can happen whenever we don't just begin with belonging and accepting people as they are right now. So when that happens, gaps, when we don't begin with belonging in any institution or family or relationship, gaps and fissures start to open up between ourselves and, and it makes our self-concept less stable, less healthy, more susceptible to manipulation, anxiety, depression, guilt, shame, and the list goes on. So what we see happening here in this encounter with the first unbeliever, and don't miss that, that's what Thomas is. He is the first doubter. He's the first skeptic because he's the first person in the world who hears the news about Jesus and gets the chance to believe it or not and doesn't. He's the first unbeliever. So, so th this is an amazing scene for us to get to peek in on, to see how Jesus 
and the first community of believers treat the first unbeliever right here in front of us. And I just think it's so beautiful and so brilliant what unfolds because Jesus isn't mad. He doesn't leverage these gaps between Thomas's self-concepts, his self-image. This is a sacred and holy like dignification of Thomas. Is that a word? I'm not sure. Dignification of Thomas. But of all the complexities of the human soul. So in this moment, Jesus is honoring Thomas, kind of like we talked about last week. He's protecting Thomas's freedom. He's respecting Thomas as a person and his inability to make his own choices without leaving Thomas like out in the cold if he makes the wrong one. He's giving Thomas the time and the space, the opportunity for his ideal self, who, his, his ought self, and his, his actual self to start to come together and actual um, be who he really is as is right now to come into alignment that's how i picture it it's like these selves moving together or even better to to actually integrate in this choice to believe to trust that jesus is who he says he is and that he's good for him It's a holy moment of respect and endearment and love. One, I think, that's repeated in the best of times of life and in the healthiest relationships. Hi, honey. Hey, Mom. How's it going? Did Nana Stuffing have rosemary or thyme? Uh, both. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Oh, you found them. Yeah, I got it. Let me see it. Okay. I like it short. Really? Hello again. Is it 300 or 350? 350. Ah, the end of that time. Look. I'm just letting it cool for a few minutes. How's everything going there? It's a little quiet, you know, just me and Dad. We miss you. I think it was you who ate the pie, dear. I did not. Dad was there. Ask him. Oh, I gotta go, Mom. Okay, honey, Love bye. You. Hasn't she made that stuffing like a million times before? Kind of choked me off when I saw it, right? See, more than any other scene in the Bible, I think the goodness and the beauty and the grace that we see in that scene is unfolding there. It's describing the first moments of the first Christian church with the first unbeliever. The Christian church is is the one that, and I think it's this scene, it's this first moment of this Christian church is the one that continues to inspire storyline. It was this story that we talked about at the beginning. It is this story that we continue to turn to, to be reminded of who God has called us to be and what he's called us to do together And for me, it comes back to this one line in this story. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Thomas was with them. What does that say about the church and what church should look like, what the church is for, who the church is for. What does that show us about how we should treat those who doubt us, 
or don't believe what we believe or outright disagree with us or even are disrespectful. Think about the puny and ridiculous disagreements about doctrine, much less about culture and politics, that make us think that where and when we live right now is negative world compared to how the first church started. That, that, causes churches, that causes churches today to split and families to fracture. They, they pale in comparison to the dangerous and the deadly gap between Thomas and the first church. And yet, Thomas was with them. Thomas is saying, I don't believe you. I don't believe your story. I don't trust you. I don't believe in Jesus. And yet, he is being treated in such a way that not only is he invited to belong, he wants to. Think about that. Eight days later, the next Sunday morning, Thomas was with them. Thomas was with them. How can these first believers in Jesus hear and take in everything that Thomas is saying about them, about Jesus, about what they believe, and still treat him in such a, a way that he's not only invited, but, in, but actually warmly welcomed? Well, John gives us a clue in a couple of the lines that I left out in the earlier passages, passages that I read. And it, this is when Jesus first comes to these guys in this upper room. Thomas wasn't with them. And this is what Jesus said. The disciples, seeing the master there with their own eyes, were awestruck. Jesus greeted, greeted them. And these are the first words of the risen Lord. Peace to you. Just as the Father sent me, I send you. Then he took a deep breath and breathed into them, received the Holy Spirit. The first church, this first community committed to living in and living out the grace of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, was embodying the message of grace with Thomas. They were being the body of Christ, the physical presence of Jesus, alive again, alive still, to show Thomas and later the world what Jesus died to give us and what Jesus rose again to live out through us. I love this story so much. To me, without this miracle after the miracle of Easter, the embodiment of the grace of God in the very first church with the very first unbeliever, the miracle of Easter would have been lost to history. Someone asked me this this week, Mike, how do you believe? I met with an old friend. How do you believe? Like, wh why do you believe? And I was so thankful I was working on this talk because I quoted this one phrase from this one chapter. They, they may be the four most important words I told him to me in the whole Bible. Thomas was with them. Thomas was with them. And then I shared with him most of this talk, and I'm sure he was not happy he asked that question. But <laughs> these first believers, the first church was unoffendable. Unoffendable 
You could disrespect them. You could disagree with them. You could endanger them. They were unoffendable and unfazed. The first church was unafraid. Why? So those who don't know would never go unloved. Thomas was with them. The first church wasn't in a negative world for Christians. They were in a violent world. Their world was a we-want-you-dead world. That's the world they were in. And yet, Thomas was with them. Doubting, disrespectful, disbelieving, dangerous, and deadly Thomas was with them. Because they knew their mission. Jesus said, just as the Father sent me, I send you. And it translates into a supernatural love, acceptance, inclusion, mercy, grace, warmth, and welcome for the first skeptic, the first doubter, the first denier to feel at home in the first church. Thomas was with them. This week, Lisa and I went to visit our dear friend Lois. She's at Woodland Terrace in Coloma. She's been a storyliner and a faithful follower of Jesus for many years. Lois is recovering from some serious health concerns. And after we finally got her to stop asking us questions about us, um, she shared how difficult it's been to be out of her home, away from her dog, unable to see her aging and infirmed parents, and how hard it is to lose her independence. Lois is in over her head in a negative situation. But then she said this with tears streaming down her face, but I know I'm here for a reason. There's a lady here who wouldn't talk at all to anyone, but with me, she's opening up. Lois's heart has become this woman's home, and Lois feels sent by God to be with her and it's been, I think, a guiding light for both of us. Well, the road is wide. The waters run on either side. And the shadow went with daylight. Stretching out towards the night.
Thomas was with them. Why? What if Thomas was with them because the first church was for him? Maybe the best church for us is the church that isn't for us. I think it's so important for us to see or to try to see what Thomas found in the soul of the first church. The first church knew it was sent on a mission the same mission that Jesus had. And because of that, Thomas was invited to and treated in such a way that he wanted to belong before he believed. And then God did what only God can do. Jesus walks through locked doors into Thomas's heart, into his reborn, integrated, actual self. Our world is all kinds of crazy. But when we come out as believers in Jesus, that means our concern is no longer is this world positive, neutral, or negative toward us. It is to be sent on a mission to embody the grace of God. And when we do that, if we'll do that together, Thomas will be with us. And as we're going to see next Sunday in John chapter 21, when that's true, Jesus will be with us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place, for this opportunity to be together. Thank you so much. We're just overwhelmed with gratitude on this Thanksgiving week for life, our lives, our family and friends, for this community all growing out of your grace shed upon us through your life, death, and resurrection and so beautifully lived out and courageously lived out in the miraculous first moments of the first church. 
remind us of our mission this week when our Thomas comes into our life and maybe even remind us that we're almost certainly someone else's Thomas. Please be with us. As we leave, help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week.